House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren, of course, and uh, side saddle, we've got Mike Brown. How are you doing, Mike? Yeah, I'm like the queen with my little wave there. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're going to be on Oprah this weekend, I hear. Uh, sure. yeah. <laughs> well, here we go. So today we've got a uh, great writer. He's got a lot of experience. Uh, his book, The Witches in West Memphis, was really uh, an eye-opener and I think great book. Um, George Jarrett, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So, George, let's let's talk about you first. Uh, how did it all start for you? Uh, how did you get into true crime and and writing and and just all of this uh, all of this stuff you do? You know, it was kind of a, a circuitous route for me. I uh, I went to college. My plan was to be a lawyer. I was going to go to law school, and then I did the whole um, you know the go to Europe for a month thing after I graduated. Got my four year degree. And I, at the time I was married, I told my wife, I said, Hey, uh, I think I'm going to, I'm going to take a year off from law school and I need to get a job. And uh, journalism had always fascinated me uh, from the time I was a kid. I just, uh, you know, I had, when I was in high school, I was the editor of the school newspaper. Uh, you know, I love to read newspapers. Um, you know, I look like I was a, a younger guy at the time, but I'd be like an old man sitting in a restaurant reading a newspaper. So I just loved journalism. So I went to a local newspaper, talked to the editor, a uh, great guy. I consider him a, uh, one of my mentors. He told me that I, could, I, I did a writing test for him. He says, you can write. I need, you need to clean some of this stuff up. He goes, if you want to be a lawyer, why don't, why don't I hire you? You can go cover cops and courts, and you can you know, get a feel for the courtroom, learn how judges interact with attorneys, how they make arguments, you know, all the things. So it just sounded like a great tutorial uh, heading into law school. So... I got a job. I started writing stories. You know, funny thing is I worked at a small newspaper, so I got to cover everything. I covered government, politics, business, education. And then about seven months into uh, my first job, I, uh, uh, there was a, a woman vanished, a college student. Her name was Rebecca Gould. And uh, a week later, they found her body. I was out there when they found her. And I was actually the one that ended up telling her father, who's a prominent dentist, um, that they had found her body. And so for 16 years, her case was unsolved. And then um, actually just a couple of months ago, finally, they arrested a guy in Eugene, Oregon. Um, he actually was living in the Philippines. Um, I guess he owned a plantation there. But he was the first cousin of this girl's sort of boyfriend at the time. And he has been charged with capital murder. So for 16, 17 years, I had written about that case, followed it. And so that's kind of how I got my start. Um, that case in recent years has gotten very, um, I want to say nationally known. Dr. Oz did about an hour uh, show on it a couple of years ago. And then the Helen Gone podcast um, with Catherine Townsend from the Discovery Channel. She had put together an eight-part podcast on that case, and I helped her with that. So that's kind of how I got my start. Well, it's interesting, but uh, journalism's changed a lot, and you're in that period where all the change seems to be happening quite rapidly. Um, how, how do you feel about doing report and reporting now as compared to just when you started? 
It's it's tough because you know, like uh, I hear a lot, there's a term out there called fake news, and it really irritates me to no end. Because basically, when you hear the term fake news by a lot of people, what that means is if you report on something they don't like, they think it's fake, and that's wrong. Uh, I never, you know, I, everybody. There's not a human being on this planet that doesn't have biases to some degree in some form. But you know, most of the journalists I've worked with through the years, I know journalists all over the country. Well, I know journalists all over the world. And, you know, uh, so that I guess that's probably the hardest thing for journalists now is that you go out, you you try to honestly cover something. And then there's a percentage of the population that doesn't like what you're covering. So then it's fake. And, you know, it's like I, I told somebody, a real good friend of mine, you know, he was mad ab about journalists and some of the stuff that was being covered in the political arena recently. And I said, hey, you have an option here. Go do it for yourself. If you think you can do a better job, if you think you can be more accurate, hey, there's there are doors open, go run through those doors and you can do the same job. So I think that's probably the toughest thing is just because being a journalist just in, in general is a really hard job that you don't get paid a lot for. You know, um, I, I told a, a bunch of college students one time, I said, you know, I, as a journalist, I have to be an expert in all these different areas. I have to be a criminologist. I have to understand how, uh, you know, I write it. It's, crazy, but I write a lot about like crops, commodities. So I have to know a lot about soybeans on a given day. You know, um, a couple of days ago, I was writing stuff with the legislature here in the state I live in. So, you know, I'm sitting there going through bills and stuff like that, spending hours and hours doing the research. So kind of when you're done at the end of that process, you don't want to hear that maybe uh, what you're reporting is fake when you know, to the best of your knowledge and abilities, it's not. Yeah, but that seems to be the climate because even I even I get messages and emails all the time saying I I work for the government or I'm whatever you know you get accused of things, so that must that really makes the job a lot more difficult, don't you think? Because as soon as you um, write something, there, there's an attack um, towards you without even really it's really not about what you wrote it's just more about the subject and who in whose side you're on they might think or something like that yeah i mean it's kind of like they expect you to take a side and it's it's like i, I don't have any sides i mean uh you know going back to politics you know i've met a lot of republicans i like a lot of democrats i like i've met a lot of republicans i can't stand i've met a lot of democrats i can't stand you know you can go back and look at my uh, reporting record through the years you know, um, I've gone after Republicans and Democrats with the same litmus test. If you do something that you're not supposed to do, if you do something illegal, if you do something immoral or wrong or something, if you go out and uh, tell your constituency that you're going to uh, support some initiative and then you don't support it or you are actually against it, when, when the reality of it is when you actually go in and vote and do your job and you're actually against it, then I report on it. And um, I have equally made both sides of the aisle very, very angry at me, which means I did the right, that means I'm doing my job. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, but, but when you say, you know, to someone, oh, well, you, you think, don't think I can, I'm doing a good job, you go out and do it. But a lot of people think that they can do it better by just sitting at home and being on the internet. And there's so much um, stuff out there, we'll say, that's just not very legitimate. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I try to tell people all the time, you know, hey, when you're, if you're watching YouTube and somebody puts on a lab coat, they're probably not a scientist or a doctor, so <laughs> listen to them. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, well, I saw it on YouTube. It must be real. I saw it on Facebook. Like, no, no, you, you, you didn't see it, it or you did see it, but it's not real. You know, so like um, I wrote about, uh, you know, I'll give you, a, a, for instance, so I write a lot about COVID-19 and the numbers. And I hear all the time people are like, oh, I don't believe these numbers. And I'm like, well, we've only been calculating these numbers with this specific way of calculating them for 100 years. Uh, spent since 1918 when the Spanish flu, you know, killed millions of people all over the world. I mean, uh, a worldwide pandemic is something that you can expect. I mean, most people don't know this in this country, but far more people have died from viruses you know, smallpox, polio, um, all these other things than have ever died in war. So the U our, our government, basically, if you boiled it down to two primary functions through the 240 some odd years of history we've had this country, the two major things that this country has dealt with through the years, actually three, uh, you know, economic um, depressions and recessions, wars and pandemics, viruses, you know, diseases that impact the entire population. So this is this should be expected. Those numbers are real. They're going to get worse. I told a friend of mine yesterday at the gym, he's like, I just don't believe half a million people have died from this disease. I said, you're <laughs> totally right. Half a million people haven't. It's a whole lot more yeah. because that's what we always find out when they go in and do the autopsy of the event is that they find that many more people died from it. It started much earlier. That's what they're going to find because that's what they found in every other instance. Yeah. Well, I heard it's not real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it, 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 you know, like, and I, you know, I have a, a, one of my best friends, he has an older brother who's just a couple of years older than me. My friend was a very, you know, he doesn't believe in it. He says, I don't think that this is real. His own brother died from it. Yeah. And I've got the text messages from his brother or not as he was texting me as his brother was dying in the hospital. And I'm like, this is real. I mean, I understand that there's a whole lot of people who may not get very violently ill or die from this, but there's, there's a lot of people. I mean, people don't understand. Right now, we've lost half a million people to this disease. That impacts the economy. I mean, people don't understand. When you take half a million people out of a population, that has severe impacts for everyone involved. It's not just the health uh, risk involved. It, there's a lot of things, that, and it, and these things will always play out. And all you have to do is pick up a history book. I read a book called uh, Pandemic 1918 by Catherine Arnold. Um, actually, ironically enough, I was reading that book at the end of February because I started hearing a little bit about COVID in China, and so I was like, oh, you know, this would be a good time to read that book. Everything in that book, I told everybody exactly what would happen the masking, the social distancing, because that's what they did 100 years ago before they could even identify a virus under a microscope. Scientists still knew how viruses worked. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really sad, but it's really sad to see people go through that. I mean, I, I, I lost a co-host uh, to Alex Jones because he was kind of going, he, people, people can be very smart and still jump into this rabbit hole and still follow it through and really believe it. You know, and I don't want to compare these two things, but there is a, a mentality like and people don't realize this, like in Nazi Germany, what the what, what the Nazis did when they appointed like commanders to their like Einsatzgruppen groups that would go through the uh, like, um, you know, like through Russia, Poland, places like that. And they would they would um, go in and they would exterminate these Jewish populations in these little villages and towns. Well, they had what they called an Einsatzgruppen, which was these these four groups. And they were commanded by guys who had PhDs. And what it is, is they would go in and they would indoctrinate the guys with the PhDs. And then these guys, if you have a PhD, you obviously have a very articulate, you're bright. 
You have an articulate mind. So they were able to talk to their soldiers and make them believe that even though these horrible atrocities they were committing, were the, they were right. And so the, the Nazis were very good at finding highly educated people to run these groups. And so, um, you know, I, I'm always afraid here in this country, I know some, some of the smartest people I know, they will say things to me that are absolutely absurd. Yeah. 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 You know, it, it's, it's, it's just the times and I, and I, and I hope it uh, swings back, but you know, and, and what caught me was, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, we're not really, but we were going to do a week series on uh, the West Mem- Memphis Three, mm-hmm. and I was scheduling people to uh, come on, and I couldn't believe the vicious <laughs> attacks that these people, when I joined a, a couple of groups on Facebook just to kind of get the feel, and I had some of these people lined up, and I was getting it together, but I couldn't believe how vicious people were with each other about uh, this case. Um, Geez, it must have been real hard for you. Uh, You must have been accused of being a Satan worshiper or all sorts of things. Literally the exact words. I mean, I would get emails, phone calls, people who, um, you know, and I had, there's an interesting part of the West Memphis Three case. I didn't start writing about it until 2008. And what happened was, is they had what they call post-conviction hearings. And so literally there were hundreds of hours of post-conviction hearings in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Well, the newspaper I worked at at the time was just down the street. It was an Associated Press newspaper. And so I would cover all these hearings the hearings lasted probably three times as long as the actual trials, both trials for the guys convicted. You know, and I tell people all the time, I, the first time I walked into a courtroom, um, it was in April of 2008. I was there to cover a 20-minute hearing. What had happened is we had a, um, an EF4 tornado had come through, uh, had ransacked a big part of Arkansas. It was one of the longest continuous track tornadoes ever recorded. It was an EF4 122 miles it had tracked. And so you guys had mentioned over earlier, well, there was a rumor going around that she was going to come. There was many towns impacted. A lot of several people had died that she was going to come and do like one of her community giveaways. And, and it was between one town in Arkansas that this tornado hit and another town, I think in Kentucky. And so I told my boss at the time, I'm like, Hey, um, if Oprah shows up, I got to be there. You know, you can't not be there for that. So, uh, well, coincidentally, I will just divulge this to you, and I'm sure this will be a shock to my former editor. My daughter had a softball game in the same town that day. <laughs> so um, so I went, went there to cover that. Well, as I'm sitting there, she texts me and says, hey, can you cover West Memphis 3 in the morning? And I'm like, sure, because they were going to have a hearing. Well, I looked at a friend of mine. I said, what's the West Memphis 3? And him and I started talking, and I'm like, oh, yeah, they did a documentary about it back, like, in 1996. And I'd seen the documentary, so I kind of remembered it. So I went to this 20-minute hearing. I met uh, Dennis Reardon. He was Barry Bonds' attorney in this Balco steroids case. Well, he was representing Damian Eccles pro bono at this point. And uh, he was flying from San Francisco for all the hearings. Super nice guy. Um, talked to him for a little bit, but then the judge, we get into the courtroom. He gags everybody. He says, I don't want to see this in the newspapers, blah, blah, blah. So they gagged the order, gag orders put in place. And at that point, I thought, okay, well, this will be the end of this. We had a reporter who had been covering the West Memphis Three from the day the bodies were found on the ditch bank. Well, I went on a trip to Florida early in the summer, 
And I get a call from my boss again telling me that that reporter had been fired. And because I had covered this one hearing in a whole newsroom full of reporters and editors and everything else, I suddenly became an expert on the West Memphis Three. So when I get back off vacation, they were going to bring in some of the most high-powered forensic pathologists in the world to testify about the evidence in the case. So I'm sure you guys are familiar with Dr. Warner Spitz. Right. He, he, uh, he came and he testified for several days, and he just absolutely chewed up and spit out the prosecution's case. And I will say this, you know, the first time I walked into the courtroom, the first time I saw Jason Baldwin, I thought, okay, there's a very heinous child killer right there. You know, I had no reason to believe that the prosecution and the police had, had gotten this case so wrong. And uh, so anyway, so Dr. Spitz starts testifying. Around this time, there, it, it's amazing, back during that time, people would actually take vacation from around the world and come to Jonesboro, Arkansas to listen to these trials or these post-conviction hearings. And so there was a, an attorney from Philadelphia, him and his girlfriend, they were there for the whole week when Dr. Spitz was testifying and some of these other guys, Dr. Michael Bodden. And um, I was sitting out in the hallway with his girlfriend and she's talking to me. She's like, so do you think these guys did it? And I said, yeah, I said, you know, the prosecutor couldn't be this far off. Could the police really be this far off? And so she said, just tell me what is the most compelling piece of information that leads you to believe that these three did it. And I said, okay, well, I didn't have anything. So I just blurted out confession, you know, Jesse, Miss Kelly Jr.'s confession. Right. And she said to me, she said, have you ever read it? And I said, no, I have not. And she said, well, go read it and tell me what you think. So I went back to my office that night and pulled out his confession. I threw it up on the desk. I started reading through it. It was laughable. Uh, he got nothing right. I mean, he, uh, this is what I know. I, I've covered, you know, um, I don't know how many murders now, probably a dozen, two dozen. I can't even keep track of all of them. And one thing I know about authentic confessions now is that an authentic confession will tell you things about the crime scene or the crime that you didn't know before, number one. So, it, and then there's an explanation as to why the, the lamp is knocked over here and why there's blood splatter on this window why this certain object has been removed from the house and all these other details. And his confession did none of that. In fact, his confession was wrong. He said that they, that the boys were kidnapped in the morning. They were not kidnapped in the morning. Uh, he said they were on their way to school when they got them. That's not true. He said they were tied with ropes around their arms and ankles. Not true. They were tied with their shoelaces. When asked to describe the place where the bodies were dumped, he could not do it. Uh, he tried to draw a diagram of what it looked like. He got everything wrong. There was nothing that he got right. So they take this confession, quote unquote, to a magistrate, and the magistrate even tells him, this will never work. I mean, this doesn't match anything in the case. So then they magically go back the same day. They turn the recording, uh, recorder back on, and magically he gets some of those details right to a degree, and then that's when the arrest warrants are issued. So um, as I'm listening to these forensic experts testify, it was becoming plainly and clearly obvious to me that there were major holes in this case. For instance, they said that Jason Baldwin took this big Rambo-style knife, and they, it was in the courtroom, and that he took it and that he emasculated um, uh, Christopher Byers. Well, here's the problem, and I don't mean to be too graphic, but, you know, he, his genitals were skinned. They were not cut off, if that makes sense. So, 
if you even if you've ever seen and they call it a Rambo style knife, I'm sure you guys have seen it. Oh, I have one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have one. Okay, so there you go, right? So and I at the time and this is ironic, my son was probably around eight, nine years old when this was going on in the courtroom. He might have been ten. But I'm sitting there looking at that knife and I know my you know, I know the anatomy of an eight to nine year old boy. Right. And I'm sitting there going, You're telling me that you took that knife and you surgically removed the skin from his genitals and his penis. And then you took that same knife and you scraped his skin. Because here's the thing. I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not, but the, uh, among all three of those boys' bodies, did you know that there was not one bone-piercing injury? No, actually, I don't. Not no. one knife thrust. So you have this knife. You're raping and torturing these kids, and you have this nine-inch long knife. And there's not one wound on any of the bodies a, a flesh wound where you stabbed him with a knife. Mm. Not buying it. Yeah, yeah. Well, why was there, what, so what do you think it was that, that drove the police to hold on to this so hard and the prosecutor? Well, you know, there was a term, um, satanic panic. I know you guys have heard that many times. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is what I tried to describe about West Memphis, and I'm not trying to bes besmirch anybody. But in, basically, in, the, in North America, there are, you know, we've got a, a major highway that runs from Canada down to Mexico, 55. And then, actually, if you really want to look at it, it runs all the way to the Antarctica. You know, it runs all the way down to, through South America, too. And then you've got highway or, you know, Interstate 40 that runs from the West Coast to the East Coast. There is one place on the map where these two major highways intersect, and it's West Memphis, Arkansas. And why that's important is, is that all goods that are moved by truck are moved north, south, east, west. And that includes, you know, furniture, groceries, whatever. Well, that also includes drugs because drugs are moved on trucks for the most part. So if you're a drug kingpin, there are certain places on the map that you kind of want to have some control. And West Memphis, Arkansas would be one of those places. And they've had a lot of trouble over there. You know, they'll bust a truck. They'll find, you know, cash and drugs and all sorts of stuff in there. And then magically the cash and the drugs just vanished. They don't know where it went. And so the FBI's had to do, you know, several investigations over there. So the police department there, when this whole thing went down, they didn't want a bunch of other agencies coming in and starting an investigate, investigating. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they wanted to keep this insular. They didn't let the state police in. They didn't ask for the FBI to help them. And so they developed a theory pretty quickly that it was satan that, that somehow this was an occult killing. Um, one of the guys, a guy named Steve Jones, who was present when the bodies were found, he was a social worker who had worked with Damien Eccles. He made the comment. He said, I guarantee you Damien Eccles had something to do with this. Now, it's very important to recognize what he said there, because here's the thing. There, if I commit a crime, let's say I kill someone. Well, there's only a couple of ways you can immediately prove I did it, right? If I confess, I go to the police station and say, I killed so-and-so and this is how I did it. Okay, then I'm a prime suspect. Let's say three people see me do it and they go to the police station and say, hey, George killed so-and-so and this is how he did it. Okay, then I'm immediately a suspect. Or let's say the police come to the crime scene and they see a, a, a concophony of evidence that points towards me. My driver's license is there for some reason. It's my gun. People saw my truck or car or whatever there at this scene. Okay, so if you have one of those three instances, then you would hone in on me pretty quickly. 
Now, if you don't have that, then you have to do police work. You have to collect evidence. You got to talk to witnesses. That's a process, and it takes time. Within 24 hours of these three bodies being found, Damien Eccles had already been interviewed. And none of those first three scenarios were in play when he was interviewed. So that tells you from the beginning that the police were honing in on him and they were trying to cater their, they weren't letting the evidence take them to the place. They were trying to put Eccles in the place, if that makes sense. Yeah, I just, um, so why did so many of them, and still to this day, believe um, that it was some sort of satanic worship? You know, it's kind of one of those things, um, you know, when you when you buy into an argument at any phase of life for a, any level, when you've bought into an argument about something, you just can't let it go. I mean, no matter the level of evidence that's presented to you, um, no matter, you know, um, what was I, I probably going to screw this up? What's that old Mark Twain saying? You know, it's easier to convince. It's easier to tell somebody a lie than convince them of the truth, yeah. you know. So they got convinced about a lie, which it was. It was a total and 100% lie. Those boys were not sacrificing in a satanic or occult ceremony. And so they believed it. You know, um, here's the thing. We have a vast swath of our population who loves the macabre. You know, they're into true crime. They're into satanic. You know, like not into it, but I mean like studying it, like reading about it. And so there's just a lot of people who are into it. They, They bought into this false premise. And the problem is, and, and I told Damien Eggles this when I, I interviewed him when he was on death row, I said, you know, what the problem is for them now is, is that science is really advanced, you know, in the last 15, 20 years. And so now some of these false, um, these arguments are just proving to be false, you know, and it's being proved out by just good science. And so um, I, I would say this. I don't think, I, I would say it's probably 75, 25 now, people who know about the West Memphis case. I think 75% of people who know about it now don't believe these guys had anything to do with it. But there's still that very vocal 25%, and I hear from them every now and then. I mean, they tell me I'm a Satan worshiper, that I'm Lucifer, that I'm on Damien Eccles' payroll. I'm like, I guess I need to call, give him a call and tell him he needs to start sending some checks my way because I haven't seen any yet. Yeah, they're, they're they're getting lost in the mail, I guess. Yeah, you know that's the thing right now, right? Mail. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know because I I think geez, uh, you know three of the people I'd lined up, like even that William Ramsey, there's some of these people, and they're really big into the Alistair Crawley thing, and and yep. that oh, you know uh, anybody that had anything good to say uh, about Damian Eccles or any of them. Um, they would look for things. Oh, look at he's hold his, holding his fingers just this way, this circular way. He must be part of the Aleister Crawley thing. And and what was that band? There was a rock band. Was Stone Temple Pilots or somebody that was? No, support- Metallica was a big time um, supporter of the West Memphis Three. Yeah, and so they 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 just like link everybody to it and. Uh, it just gets a little bit too crazy. How did you feel about Damien Eccles when you actually talked with him? You know, it was interesting. He wrote me a letter um, in, um, it was in the spring of 2010. Uh, walked in one day, saw it sitting there. Uh, he's a, his penmanship was great. I mean, he very neatly written letter. And, um, you know, I, when I went down there, it was in June of 2010. I actually spent some time with his wife, Lori, 
uh, interviewed her. I actually went out and ate dinner with her one night. I told her, I said, you know, everybody on the planet thinks you're like, oh my, you know that, right? (laughs) I mean, and she laughed, you know, and she's like, oh yeah, because she's this highly educated, affluent woman who married a, a guy who's sitting on Arkansas's death row, you know, for the heinous murder of three children. And, um, so I went down there, um, a photographer and I, we went and interviewed him. The interview was supposed to last, I think, 45 minutes. We ended up talking for about four hours. Uh, Damien uh, was intelligent, or is intelligent, excuse me. He was an intelligent guy, um, very articulate, um, very forthcoming, very honest. He knew the mistakes he had made, you know, as far as, you know, um, lampooning to the families of the victims. You know, he knew that was a horrible mistake, but he was a kid or a teenager, 18 years old or whatever. Uh, you know, he, um, he would, the thing I always tell people, you know, we think about the West Memphis three as three, as like a unit, but in actuality, there are three different people and there are three different people from a legal perspective as well. And one thing that Damien told me when I was there is he wanted every bit of evidence DNA tested. He goes, test it all. And that was interesting to me because And I know that an attorney had to talk to, I know he'll never admit it and an attorney will never say it, but an attorney had to pull him into a room at some point when this whole process is going on and had to have said to him, okay, listen, if you're, if they test DNA tests for everything and they don't find your DNA, you're fine. They don't find Jason's DNA. You're fine. But what if just by happenstance, they found Jesse's DNA. Now that doesn't convict you in a court of law, but you know where it will convict you in the court of a public opinion and what they had done is they had raised so much awareness and raised so much money to get themselves out that literally if they had found, you know, DNA from another suspect in uh, among the three, then it would convict the other two just because they, we assume they're, you know, like one unit. So they took a risk. I mean, it was a very strategic risk and they never, never, they never faltered one time. Every time there was a test available, they said, test it, test it all, do all the testing. Yeah, pretty interesting. Who do you think did it, or do you? Do you have like an opinion? There's a few other people that you know have come up, and and they sort of suggest it in, in some of the documentaries. Um, what's your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, the, of course, the most famous documentaries about this case, Paradise Lost, with uh, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky. Right. And they uh, very and I I I I knew Bruce before he passed away, and I've, I still know Joe. In fact, I saw him a couple of years ago. I'm used to spend a lot of time with those guys when they were putting together, especially the third uh, Paradise Lost 3. They were in town a lot and used to talk to them about this case a lot. Um, you know, of course, they pointed the finger at Terry Hobbs, um, yeah. stepfather. And I've interviewed Terry probably three times. And, um, you know, I told him one time when I was talking to him, I said, hey, he said, do you think I had something to do with it? And I said, I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. It's not my place to convict anybody for anything. I said, but I will say this. Your DNA was found on one of the victims. Your alibi witness says there's no way you guys were together when the boys disappeared. And I've interviewed him. He told me to my face, we were not together when these boys disappeared. Well, automatically, that means that he's telling a story. His alibi witness is telling a competing story. Terry's DNA is found on one of the victims, and he admits it is probably his DNA. It was a hair that was found on Michael Moore. And then, of course, the, there's another piece of DNA evidence found at the crime scene. It's a hair from David Jacoby. And so you have a stepdad, the guy that he was with, um, 
just previous. Now, we do know that he was with David Jacoby in the hour before the boys disappeared. That has been verified. So you've got a competing story. You've got DNA evidence at the scene. And then you've got um, three women. See, Terry's whole story is, is that he came home from work that day and never saw Stevie, never saw Christopher, never, never saw Michael, never saw the three boys. And that he, you know, went out and started looking for him at some point. Well, the problem is, is that we have affidavits from three women who are on their way to church. You know, a woman named um, Jamie Clark Ballard and her sister and her mother who saw the boys come through their backyard around 630 that night. And they told the boys that some family members were out looking for them. And Christopher told Jamie, he said, you can't tell me what to do. You're not my boss. And she said, well, your brother, because she was in the same grade as his older brother, Ryan. She says, well, Ryan's looking for you. You need to go home. Well, right about the time as they're pulling out and driving up the street, a guy who matches Terry Hobbs' description is motioning for the boys to come inside the house. Hmm. Wow. It's, it's a pretty uh, – do you think it would ever really be solved, this case? Probably. I'll say this. If you would have asked me the day before the guys got released, if they'd ever get released, I would have told you no. If you would have asked me on November 6th, of 2020, if Rebecca Gould's murder case, which had been unsolved for going on 17 years, if it would get solved, I would say probably not. So I'll say this. I, some other shoe would have to drop, like there would have to be a full, real confession from somebody, more than likely. But that's probably, uh, at this point, you know, it, it's so ironic to cover a case like this. Because now you're getting to the point in life where literally some of these characters and people who are involved in this case, they're literally starting to pass away. You know, John Mark Byers was killed in a car wreck last year. And so he's gone now. He was the other stepfather that a lot of people thought had something to do with it um, when the first documentary came out. So you're starting, it's getting to the point where a lot of the attorneys are, you know, I see some of these guys on TV now and I'm like, man, he looks really old now, you know I mean? (laughs) So I, it would have to be something maybe if a new enterprising prosecutor came in, I always thought it was funny. Scott Ellington, you know, the, the prosecutor in the case that let these guys go, he, um, he used to just get blasted because of the way it went down, the Alford plea and all this other, uh, business. And I always, I always defended Scott to a degree. I'm like, well, they could have spent the rest of their lives in jail. He let them out. I mean, it may not be the perfect resolution to this, but those guys have been out of prison going on 10 years now. I, I know. I, I've talked to Jason. I've talked to Damien. Um, they like not being in prison. So he did help them to a degree. Yeah. I, I just ha- I, I wonder, but if the impact of this case and what we've learned from, you know, especially lately, not just this case, but many cases, you know, um, about the justice system and how unreliable it can be and, uh you know, will this will this ever um, happen again? You know, this type of case. Do you think? You know, the Satan worshiping and 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 all getting behind an idea that's not really provable. You know, what's funny to me. I mean, I've been in the just. I've been in the courtroom a lot, a lot of different states, and it's all kind of a mismatch of the same stuff. And what I'll say is this about that: our justice system is not about getting justice. It's about who tells the best story once you're in the process. And I have advocated for this, and I still advocate for it. I think we need a professional juror system in this country. The last 
group of people that you want if you're accused of some heinous, horrible crime is a group of your peers deciding whether you did it or not. And, you know, my wife's a teacher. I mean, and I think teachers are great. I think plumbers are great. I think um, people who own businesses are great. They're smart in their own way, all that kind of stuff. But you don't want them going into a courtroom determining, you know, trying to determine what evidence is more powerful than other evidence. I mean, because here's the thing. So in a courtroom, this is this is how the jury takes their cues. The judge, the prosecutor, and then the defense attorney. So automatically, if you're a defendant, you're at a, a, a significant disadvantage because anytime the judge says, hey, you should take this evidence, you should, should be more compelling to you than this bit of evidence, and they don't just directly say it. It's kind of like this. So in the West Memphis 3 case, I'll give you an example. There was a sociologist. He's uh, considered one of the top sociologists in the world. And he, he believed from the beginning he works at, um, I believe it, he, he teaches at Stanford. And uh, he's, a, he's a, an expert on false confession. And he immediately went through this whole thing. He thought that Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. gave the worst false confession he had ever seen among all the false confessions he had written about and studied and testified about in court. And this guy, there is no way he wasn't an expert. Well, in the West Memphis 3 case, he was not designated as an expert. He was able to give testimony, but in a very limited way. And this was all decisions made by the judge. Well, if the judge is making this decision, what is that telling the jury? It's telling them, even on a subconscious level or even on a conscious level, you should not put as much gravity to this guy's words. You, you, the gravity's less. Now, they had the paper, you know, the guy who got his uh, PhD at a diploma mill in California, who was a supposed occult expert, he was classified as an expert at the trial. So what is the judge telling the jury? You better listen to this guy because he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, that's tough. So, we, what do you, you know, how do you qualify a jurist then? You know, like who decides that? That's kind of a, a tough one. We, we can't even get qualified people running for government, right? So, yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's absolutely true. You know, I don't know how we would, we would implement a professional juror system, but we need to have jurors who understand the weight of evidence, you know, like I was giving you guys a laundry list of things um, about Terry Hobbs just a second ago, you know, his DNA is, is uh, alibi witnesses, DNA being at the scene. Well, I gave you that whole litany of stuff. Well, as a juror, you've got to pick out out of all those, which would be the most important. Well, obviously one thing we're going to do is we're going to say, Oh, DNA, that's the most important. Well, here's the funny thing of that list. I just gave you, the one piece of evidence, the, the two pieces of evidence that you can make an argument against for sure are the DNA. Because Terry Hobbs, that hair could have gotten under Michael Moore by secondary hair transfer. David Jacoby's hair could be at the crime scene through hair, secondary hair transfer. These kids and these people are all kind of hanging out. So there's an argument as an attorney. Now, what is the only argument you have against Jacoby and Terry telling two opposite stories? The only thing you can say is one of them's lying. Well, how do you prove that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, but it, 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 I think this case to me um, points out policing, law enforcement, um, and they're, they're only human. And if they have an opinion of someone like they did of Eccles. Um, so if Terry Hobbs was in the same place or in a place where police didn't like him for whatever the reason, he could have been the one they chose. It's right. really it's really about feelings and uh, opinions of of people, 
more so than evidence. And this is a, a perfect case that points that points to that. Absolutely. Agree 100% wholeheartedly. That, and this is how you know. From, from the first hours of the bodies being found, they said this, everyone involved, the police officers, you can go back and read the reports, the notes, go look what was in the media, go, go look, use any litmus test you want to use. They, from the very beginning, said this was a satanic or an occult killing, and they had already identified the type of person that they thought could commit this crime, not based on evidence, based in personal theory. Yeah, it's terrible, actually. Um, I think people have to realize that, that it's not that necessarily that law enforcement are bad people. Um, there's a lot of good people in it, and they, they want to do good, and they want to solve crimes, but they're just people, and they have the same feelings of you and I. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's something that I always like to do, and I've got lots of friends who are in law enforcement, uh, some good friends of mine, you know, and they're in law enforcement agencies, you know, pretty much all over the country. But one thing I always like to do is if I've got a case that's just like crazy, like the police are just not, I don't think they're doing a very competent job. I don't, of my own uh, opinion, go out and talk about it. What I will do is I will, I will take that case and I'll go talk to some of my other friends in law enforcement. And almost universally, when I bring them a case that I think is just nuts or they're just off the they're off their rockers or off the wrong path. I've never had a situation where someone from another police agency said, Hey, George, I think you're wrong. <laughs> a lot of times they look at me and go, what are they doing? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, that's good. Uh, why did you write that book? Why did you like, what was the, you know, what, what was in your mind at the time of, of actually sitting down and deciding to write a book? You know, I'll, you know, being a journalist, you know, you write pretty much every day or a lot of days out of the month, you know, you spend writing. And so it's kind of like a natural progression that at some point you would want to write a book. One thing I noticed is I was going to a lot of like colleges and high schools and I would talk about this case and it's, it's laborious. Like there's a lot of information. There's a lot of, um, a lot of stuff you have to get through. And so I thought to myself, okay, I had all these extensive notes. I had been in the courtroom for all these hours. I'd been on death row. I'd interviewed everybody in the case. I'd, I had interviewed the jury foreman. You know, him and I almost got into a fight at the gym one day because he was so mad about some of the stuff I wrote. And um, so it just kind of like, it was just kind of like a natural thing. I'm like, okay, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to concisely put all this stuff in the book. And then everybody will understand, you know, why these guys got released and they should have got released. I mean, I told Damien Eccles when he was sitting on death row to his face, I said, Damien, I don't know if you did this or not, because that's not my job as a journalist. I wasn't sitting on the ditch bank when the bodies were dumped. Now, as a responsible citizen, I could be a juror in a, in a, in a capital murder case. I could have been a juror in your case. Could I have convicted you in a court of law? Absolutely not. And so that's where I put it. So I wrote the book because I wanted people to understand um, how this case was laid out and the stuff that this is the thing you talked about, uh, William Ramsey and some of these other guys who talked about this case, yeah. they will bring up things that were never brought up in a court of law. And that is where the problem is. Uh, we we're going back to the fake news and all this other stuff is they will bring up stuff that was never presented as evidence in court. Well, here's the problem. If I'm making an argument against you and I'm, it's almost a dishonest argument. Just let's lay out everything that was laid out in court, and then let's come to an uh, opinion. And so that's kind of why I did it. And, of course, the last chapter of my book 
is actually about a totally different case, but it's in the same judicial district as the West Memphis Three. Um, you know, two days or two years, almost to the day after these guys got released, there was a guy named Christopher Sal, a 17-year-old who got um, charged with murdering an 11-year-old girl less than probably 40 miles from where the three boys were found in West Memphis. And he spent eight months in jail. And at the end of it, they found a sperm cell in her body and they DNA tested it and it didn't belong to him. So, and he had confessed. And his confession had some things that were, you know, you'd read it and you'd go, oh, well, he knew a little bit about it. But then, you know, in retrospect, you really look at it and you sit down and go, okay, if I told someone that a body was found in water, and how did they die? What are the chances that the, a person of average intelligence would say they drowned? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's so he didn't really know anything. And, you know, the, the guy whose uh, sperm cell actually the, the donor of the sperm cell, he actually had a lengthy criminal history and come home early from work and was another neighbor of this little girl. So and I think they, they tried to find a little shoe print inside his Jeep and. If you go back and he's been convicted of rape, he's never been charged with a murder, but he's in jail for like 30 years now. But the prosecutors believe he did it, you know, wholeheartedly. And they let the other guy go. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell, and I tell people, had it not been for one sperm cell, that dude would be on death row right now. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and Eccles, have you talked to him since? Um, yeah, I have. I talked to him. Let's see. I've talked to him a few times. Um, he, let's see, I want to say 2017. Yeah, 2017. Um, the state of Arkansas, and you guys might remember this, they were going to execute like eight people in two weeks because their drug cocktail that they used to execute people was about to go out of date. Yeah. And uh, so they only ended up executing actually four people, but he would have been one of the eight. Uh, it would have been if he had still been on death row. Well, I was at the Capitol in Little Rock. Um, they were having a rally um, to try to stop these executions. And as I'm standing there, I look over underneath a tree next to the steps, and there are thousands of people at this thing, media from all over the world. And I look over, and I see uh, Damian Eccles standing there with Johnny Depp. And so I just walk right over to him and start talking to him. And um, <laughs> I told him, I said, man, I haven't seen you in a while. And he goes, I don't make it back to Arkansas very much. And um, so anyway, we sat down, we, we had a, a long talk. Of course, as soon as I went over there, within a couple of minutes, a lot of the media, you know, vultures, they just all run over there. And um, so I saw him then. And then um, I want to say in August, August of 2018, maybe, like on the anniversary of their uh, getting out, I contacted him and his wife and they did a story with me. Um, but I haven't probably talked, I haven't contacted them in probably a couple of years. Yeah. I just wonder if, if life can really get back to, to somewhat normal after such a big event. You know, Jesse moved right back into the trailer that he was living in the day he got arrested. I mean, at the Lakeshore tra- uh, trailer park there in West Memphis. You know, I always tell people, you know, you know, getting back to his confession, because I think that's really the only thing that anybody can hang their hat on. And one thing that they'll hang their hat on is that he confessed multiple times. And um, I taught, you know, I went to Dan Stidham, you know, his original defense attorney, who's a judge. Now I went to his office one day out of the blue. I just showed up in Paragould, Arkansas, walked into his office. I said, I want you to explain something to me, Dan. How can he know detail as, as time went on, he confessed four or five, I don't remember how many times. 
as he confessed each time, how did he know more details? And Dan just laughed at me. He goes, because he was at trial. He was learning stuff. He, he learned new things, and then he was able to spout it out. And I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. But the, I always tell people there's one thing, and they can't get around this one detail in his confessions. He gave one detail in all of those confessions that is absolutely refutable. The detail he gave was that the three, two of the three boys were sodomized. They were not. The state medical examiner admitted during the um, post-conviction hearings that there's, there's absolutely no evidence that the boys were sexually assaulted in any way. There's none. There's zero. Zero evidence. Dr. Um, Richard Suverin, um, you might know, you remember Dr. Richard Suverin. He was the forensic, um, and I always say this wrong, I'm going to say it anyway, odontologist who identified uh, <laughs> Ted Bundy, the serial killer. Right. He told me, uh, he testified at a hearing one time, and I, I, I said, hey, he said, no, there is no evidence. He said, at all. He said, there's no sperm present. There's no sexually transmitted diseases. Um, there's no anal tearing or bruising at all. And it's, it's really graphic and horrible. But they took the three boys' anuses and they blew them up on these huge pictures and put them in the courtroom. And even to the uneducated, uninitiated eye, you could see that there was no damage to them at all. And Dr. Janice Ophoven, who is the, um, she is the preeminent forensic pediatric pathologist in the world. And she said, she's testified in court. She looked at the judge and she said, this is a violation of responsibility. And she was talking to him and everybody else involved in this case because there was no evidence that the boys have been sexually assaulted at all. Crazy, crazy case. Uh, now, do you have a website um, available so people can come and call you names? And you know, I, I, I've actually, I pretty much just stick to social media now. I, yeah. I was going to start a website back in the day, but the thing about it is the social media is so much more, um, the reach is just, it, uh, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's a different animal. I mean, I, I, I was reporting at a time and writing at a time prior to, so before social media and, um, the, yeah, I, the, you can reach me on Facebook, <laughs> Instagram, my email address is out there. I mean, people, people who want to say horrible things to me, they always find me. It's incredible. Yeah. They've got the time. Yeah, they do. <laughs> I'll tell you, they, they, they can get it all at once, too. It's great. I love it. Um, wow. So has, how's the COVID been for you? Has it affected the way you um, write, or does it, does, it get, does it affect any of your creativity? I don't think so. Um, I started trying to write some, like, I, I, wrote a, a, I wrote a fiction book that I'm working on right now, and it's, it's decent. Like, I've got, I've got a couple of um, really good friends who are very honest. And if I'm wasting my time, I'm like, hey, if I'm wasting my time, I don't want to waste my time. So I don't think so. Uh, it's kind of weird. You know, for a couple of months, I was stuck in my house. Um, I've got a, my daughter's in college, and so she had to come home from college. And uh, my, my son actually graduated from college, and he's, you know, um, he actually got a job in the middle of all this and is making, uh, actually doing very well for himself. I don't think so. Um, it's weird, though, because I, I like being around people. I like going it. I mean, I hate to say it, but I mean, like, I... You know, some of the people I write about, some of those heinous people in the world, I mean, you know, I, there's an interaction with those people that I kind of miss having because you want to, you know, somebody asked me one time, like I, I wrote about a case where the, this father and son were convicted of brutally slaughtering a mom, a dad, and a little boy. And they took this little girl and um, they kept her in a barrel out in a garage and they only brought her out to rape her and torture her. 
the case is among the most brutal cases you will ever read about or research. And um, in fact, I had a woman one time, a producer for a show in California, they had, they wanted to talk about um, some of these murder cases I had covered. And in this, they asked me for a couple of stories. One in the cache of stories I sent them, I sent them this story. And right before we were about to go on, the woman's like, I can't even believe that you can write like this. Cause I've gave very, very finite details. I mean, it was awful. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I do like, and I talked to the, the, the two guys who got convicted. I was sitting right next to one of them when he got convicted of quadruple homicide. And, um, so I do miss the, the courtroom, the interaction with people, uh, going out and, you know, it's, you know, like I like talking on zoom call. I'm on a zoom call almost <laughs> every day. It's like, uh, you know, um, but it, it, I'll tell you this, it, it's a little bit harder. Like, um, I was telling you guys, I had, um, discovered that a guy named Polly Litowski or Polly Lit as he's known in uh, Hollywood was actually living in the town, working out in the same gym I work out in. I'd seen him a thousand times. He'd been here a couple of years, just a nice guy, younger guy, 25 ish. And he's running this huge yarn business. So like one of the high end yarn, like one of the hot, better high end yarn producing companies in the United States for high end clothing, you know, and um, he was just living in New York, had a crazy idea and wanted easy access to cotton. Well, there's cotton all over the Mississippi Delta. So he just found a, a huge warehouse where he could set up his machines and start producing this high end cotton. And so, um, but yeah, mm, it's crazy, crazy. Well, it's been an interesting uh, hour and I appreciate you taking the time. Um, our guest has been uh, George Jared, and of course, uh, the book we're talking about, which is in Memphis, and it's uh, West Memphis Three, uh, Three False Confessions. Um, you can uh, look them up. You know, find them on Facebook. Send them, send them some nasty notes. Um, yeah, that's what I like. The, the more, the better. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, keep them alive. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.